So, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts with you today. This week is our third in our series called Recreate, in which we are discussing the values that drive the Spark community. Pastor Danielle led us off two weeks ago with the value of love, and Pastor Kevin followed us up with the value of reconciliation. If you don't remember, we talked about the football. Reconciliation is the focus, the football of everything. And today I'm going to take us through the value of reputation. Whose reputation? Good question. Let's start off by defining what reputation is. Webster's Dictionary defines reputation as the quality of being reputable. Actually, it doesn't. And we're not going to go down that path, so don't worry, all right? If I'm going to discuss reputation, then it has to begin with the story of a young man. A man who served in the U.S. Air Force during the Korean War and subsequently returned and learned the martial art of Taekwondo. He returned to the United States and proceeded to put together a five-decade career as a businessman, a martial arts instructor, an inventor, and dare I say, the finest action star of our time. Ladies and gentlemen and beloved persons of Spark, I am speaking, of course, of Carlos Ray Norris, also known as Chuck Norris. It's the wrong movie, but I still wanted to use that song. Anyways, after three decades, three decades into a spectacular career, a new development added to the aura of Mr. Norris, that of the Chuck Norris joke. The reason for their popularity was that they embellished, nay, properly identified the identity and the greatness of Mr. Chuck Norris. And so I call upon a person of similar amazingness, Darren Phillip. He's, you saw him with the shakers, see what he can do with his voice. He's here to share some statements of brilliance with us. Mr. Phillip, give him a round of applause. When Chuck Norris does a push-up, he's actually pushing the earth down. <laughs> Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. Chuck Norris's calendar goes straight from March 31st to April 2nd because no one fools Chuck Norris. If paper beats rock, rock beats scissors, and scissors beats paper, what beats all three at the same time? Chuck Norris doesn't wear a watch. He decides what time it is. The flu gets a Chuck Norris shot every year. In Pamplona, the people are running from the bulls, but the bulls are running from Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris ignores the periodic table because Chuck Norris only recognizes the element of surprise. Time waits for no man, unless that man is Chuck Norris. <laughs> and in a two-way tie for number one, we have two Genesis-themed Chuck Norris statements. Here's one B. In the beginning, there was nothing. Then Chuck Norris roundhouse kicked nothing and told it to get a job. And 1A, on the seventh day, 
God rested, and Chuck Norris took over. So if you remember nothing else from the sermon, remember that Chuck Norris is awesome. (laughs) But of course, Spark, that was all facetious. I love Chuck Norris, but he is not this amazing. He is not, as my generation used to say, he's not all that in a bag of chips. But someone that we do acknowledge to be worthy of all superlatives, superlative after superlative after superlative, is God. And so today we're going to discuss the reputation of God. My question for you, Spark, is what are the views that people at large hold about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. I'm talking about followers of Jesus, non-followers of Jesus, and everyone in between. What do people think of God? Let's start with the positive side. And if you can't think of anything, we just talked about Chuck Chuck Norris for the last five minutes, so you can think of something. Come on. So go ahead, shout them out. Shout out the, the things that you think that are positive about God. And if you're on Zoom right now, you can type them into the chat, and Stacey will yell them out for you. Okay, so what are some of the positive things, wonderful things about God? Love, creation, powerful, all-knowing, help, ever-present, ever-present, everlasting, beautiful. Thank you, guys. And uh, anybody on, on, oh, come on, Zoom, folks. Abundance. Good one, Tony. Forgiving. Merciful. Oh, I can't stop now. Jeez. Patience. Can't stop. You can't stop. Exactly. So. Now, my next question for you is, what are some of the negative views that people hold about God? What are some of the more pointed, critical opinions that people at large have about the God of Christianity? Again, go ahead and shout them out. And if anyone on the Zoom call wants to share some, Stacey will yell them out for you. So what are some of the negative things that people think about God? I'm sorry, wait. Angry. Vengeful. Judgmental. Shaming. Exclusive. Uh huh. Demanding. Overly demanding. Anything from the Zoom folks? Legalistic. God hates sinners. I'm sorry? (laughs) So, those are all things that people hold about God. And again, they came right to mind, right? Um, So, as for the positive views, why? Why do people have these positive views of God? Well, it's because people have personal experiences with God, where God has blessed them and surprised them with God's goodness and love. And at least that's how they've interpreted what they've seen or people have interpreted for them. Moreover, people have experiences with those things that announce the good news about God. The Bible, the church, followers of Jesus, they say, God loves you. God has a plan and purpose for your life. God seeks and saves the lost. God stands with you, and God grieves with you. As for the negative views... Why does God have such negative views sometimes from people? Well, people have personal experiences with God where God has been unjust or allowed evil to enter their lives. Or at least that's how they've interpreted what has happened to them or how people have interpreted it for them. And they've also had negative experience with the Bible, the church, and followers of Jesus. Those entities that tell ostensibly bad news about God. God hates people who sin. God will will send you to hell unless you do what God says. God only blesses the deserving. God maintains a status quo. Segregation, patriarchy, puritanism, this is God's will. So don't try changing anything. God's reputation is very much dependent upon those who follow God. People in general watch those who claim to follow God in the person of Jesus. 
and their opinion of God is shaped by those who follow Jesus, for better or for worse. Upholding the reputation of God is one of the reasons for Spark's existence. As our quote-unquote charter says, the central character in the story of our faith journey is God. Like Moses in Exodus 32, we care deeply about what others think about God and the repute that God has in our culture, in our community. What do we want people to know about the God of Jesus? Well, in Exodus 32, we see Moses worrying about what people think about God when God chooses to punish the nation of Israel. Why, God, would you lose your temper with your people? Why? You brought them out of Egypt in a tremendous demonstration of power and strength. Why let the Egyptians say he had it in for them? He brought them out so that he could kill them in the mountains, wipe them right off the face of the earth. Stop your anger. Think twice about bringing evil against your people. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you gave your word. Moses is telling God, what about your reputation? You can't let people think that you don't keep your promises because you do keep your promises, even when others are unfaithful to you. Our charter also says, we desire to elevate that reputation in our consciences, consciences and conversations with all people so that the world will know of God's grace, love, and redemption from the beginning of, all the way to the very end. And then it lists these scriptural passages, which we'll go through a couple of these right now. For example, with Deuteronomy 7, it says more about God's faithfulness and love. A faithful God who keeps his covenant of loyal love with those who love him and observe his commandments for a thousand generations. Psalm 145 is a 21 statement proclamation of God's reputation, filled with superlatives even greater than those given to Chuck Norris. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. This is what we, as followers of Jesus, believe God to be. And what is our responsibility as followers of Jesus? We are to make evident what we believe. God is good. So interspersed with these verses in Psalm 145 are also these verses, which are promises by the psalmist to proclaim these very things. I will extol you, my God, and my king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you, I will bless you, and praise your name forever and ever. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. What prom- These are promises that we make to God as part of God's creation. And to what degree should we uphold the name of God? To our own detriment, if need be. Again, from Spark Charter. We believe God's name, reputation, renown really is great. We believe the world needs to hear of this greatness. And then it cites Acts 20:24 20, in the words of Paul. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish this course, my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Following the example of the Apostle Paul, we are to give our all in telling the good news that God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you so that God can express that love fully to you and through you. 
We are to go above and beyond, not just in what we do and say, but also in who we tell and where we go to tell them. Being spark means healing our image of God, discovering a God of great repute, and carrying that reputation to the world. And then we see here uh, Jesus' call in Acts 1.8. In summary, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming God's love and goodness to all people and to all creation. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this quite specifically. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, the Greek word here is presbyomen, which can be translated as be an elder or presbyter, if you've heard that term before, Presbyterians, a wise, experienced leader of a community who represents the community in judgment, in decision-making, and in guidance. But we're going to run with the idea of ambassador here. And the Latin word for ambassador, ambassia, can mean task, journey, or mission. So an ambassador is one who carries out a mission. But on whose behalf? On behalf of the head of state. In the Roman context, which Paul was writing, this is long, Roman diplomacy consisted of establishing treaties of peace, of alliance, and general agreements in the field, sending and receiving embassies to Arab complaints and and congratulations, establish alliances, declare war, investigate matters affecting Roman security interests, settle disputes, and demand satisfaction for perceived injuries and offering and accepting interstate mediations of disputes and wars. In other words, ambassadors act as an extension of the head of state in all matters. Our head of state is Jesus. We speak on his behalf. We uphold his reputation. And we are are to call people to reconcile themselves to God. Reconcile themselves to God. Where have we heard that before? The football. Back to basics. Reconciliation of people to God is what everything is about. And we do it even if it means we personally lose out. But we're not really great at this, are we? One reason that people don't seek reconciliation with God is because they don't see God as someone worth reconciling with. He has a bad rep, and part of that is our fault. Here's my guess why we're so bad. First thing, we're human. We're fallible. And yet God chooses to use us as his ambassadors anyway because it utilizes our gifts, it gives us purpose, and it enables us to grow in love of God through working together with God. You know how shared experiences can build relationship? You know, you hike with someone or you build a fence with someone or you throw a party with someone or church service with someone? That's what I'm talking about. It builds relationship. But the next reason why we're not so good at this is because we create God in our own image. We say things like, You believe that is what God wants? Well, my God would never. Or we say, only God can judge me, which equates to, you are not my equal. In fact, the only one equal to me is God. Or we say, God is on my side, which works because we believe in a God who believes in what we believe in. So it's it's like a snake eating its tail. It reflects upon itself. Thirdly, I think that we like the protection that teams provide. We look for a group of like-minded individuals, consider how closely their views match ours, and then we decide to join them. And then rather than serve as an ambassador to God, we also become ambassadors for that team. And there's no problem or potential conflict in that because you found the team that agrees with you. God is on my side becomes God is on our side. 
And if something goes wrong and I could have done something about it, then my team will back me up even if I'm wrong. No, you did it the right way. You did it our way. A fourth reason, which is connected to the other reasons why we're not so great at sharing reconciliation is we don't like being in difficult circumstances. No matter how complicated and interwoven a situation might be, we look for the easiest explanation because it lends itself to easy decision-making. You know Occam's razor, which says the simplest explanation is probably the correct explanation? We love that. Simple is great. Simple gives a sense of security and certainty, even if things are actually uncertain and very complicated. So try this metaphor on for size. Imagine that you are appointed the U.S. ambassador to Colombia. Your role is to reconcile Colombia to the United States and to further that relationship. It's a job with tons of responsibilities, with real social, economic, and military consequences for Latin America, for the entire world. So you seek the help of previous ambassadors to Colombia who give you excellent guidance. And as a representative of the United States, you have a clear understanding of American goals for relations with Colombia how they should be achieved. You know the history of Colombia, including the indigenous peoples, Spanish colonization, Simon Bolivar's influence, the Monroe Doctrine, American influence, the Cold War, the drug war, everything after. You speak the official language, Spanish, and you want to understand Colombian culture and practice Colombian mores to avoid any misunderstandings. And you actually live in Colombia and be in proximity to those you interact with. And so you bring all of that to the fore, and you're extremely successful bringing the U.S. and Colombia together. And because of that success, you're also called to be ambassador to China. And it's a job with a ton of responsibilities, with real social, economic, and military consequences for the entire world. And so as the successful U.S. ambassador to Colombia, you employ everything that you worked on in Colombia in China. You learn nothing about China. You know the history of Colombia, and you speak only of U.S.-Colombia relations when you speak to the Chinese president. You speak Spanish, not Mandarin or, or Cantonese, exclusively when you go to China. You practice Colombian mores when you meet with Chinese dignitaries. And you continue to live in Colombia, talking to representatives only by, by Zoom. And you ignore the history between the U.S. and China because it doesn't matter. And as an emissary to China, you fail miserably. And you ask yourself, why didn't this work? It all worked before. But despite your failures, you're now called to be the ambassador to Cameroon. And you think, well, it didn't work in China, but it should work in Cameroon, right? So you bring your knowledge of Colombian history and your interactions to your interactions with Cameroonian diplomats. You speak Spanish in a country that exclusively almost speaks French. You practice Colombian mores when you meet with the Cameroonian president. And you continue to live only in Colombia. And you ignore the history between Cameroon and colonizing nations because it doesn't matter. And then you become ambassador to Canada and to Croatia and to Cambodia. And with each nation, you continue to act like you're interacting with Colombia. And why not? It worked in Colombia. And all these countries start with the letter C. So it should work. So I'll just double down and I'll emphasize Colombian culture even more. So I think this... I hope this helps to express what I'm trying to say here, which is when we create God in our own image, it means that we're always susceptible to make God fit into whatever template suits us. We don't let God be God. We let God be a God that we need. 
And then we ignore this really basic truth. Who most closely reflects God? Who stands first among God's ambassadors? Who is the primary person that God sent? Jesus. Jesus said, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is God's main ambassador, God's hype man, if you will. And he sets the template for how we should serve. And it's an adaptable style of diplomacy, one that changes to fit the person with whom he's interacting in order to reconcile them to God. Whoa. This is keep coming up. This keeps coming up. So in the stories of the Gospels, Jesus takes different approaches with different people, even within the same groups. And we'll just call them the soft and hard approaches to simplify things. For Jewish individuals, Jesus was welcoming towards tax collectors who collaborated with the Roman government, like Levi and Zacchaeus. But he was combative with the Pharisees. For Gentiles, he was considerate of the Samaritan woman. He was gruff with the Syrophoenician woman. Siblings. Oops. Siblings. He sat with Mary. He let Martha do her thing. He gave a ton of attention to Peter, the loud one. And we hear nothing about Andrew. He gave a lot of attention to John, the quiet one. And we don't hear much about James. Crowds. He sat and preached to some. He walked away from others. He referenced Jewish scriptures with some crowds. He employed Greek stories with others. And he changed his approaches to help the group that was with him to understand what he was saying better. The wealthy. Jesus showed compassion to the rich young ruler. But he told the story of a special place in hell for the wealthy who ignored the needs of their neighbor. Miracles. He healed many in some places, but he did not heal anyone at all in others, including his hometown at Nazareth. Rulers. He spoke at length with Pilate. He said not a word to Herod. Religious leaders. He sat and shared with Nicodemus. He battled with Caiaphas. Jesus did not have a one-size-fits-all approach to reconciling people to God. He constantly adapted his approach so that they could best relate and connect with God. And his disciples did the same and found success using some of his methods. And we can hear that in Apostle Paul's uh, statement about adaptability when he was serving as an ambassador. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become, it came as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might, by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Be reconciled to God that I may share in its blessings. So that adaptable approach ought to be at the heart of what we do. Sometimes we speak from the heart, and we let the Spirit speak extemporaneously through us. And sometimes we plan and we structure, and we, say, we, we plan how we say it and how we're going to phrase things. Sometimes we stick with what we know and what we're good at. And sometimes we try things that are novel and honestly uncomfortable. Sometimes we're gentle, and we allow people to come to the end of themselves. 
And sometimes we are more direct and we point out how they are hurting themselves and others. And we say, hey, be reconciled to God. And sometimes we're even more direct and we implore upon them. Hey, do you see all those people throwing footballs at you? Be reconciled to God. Next catch. So we adapt to all to help someone understand, all for the sake of the person that's now holding the football. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And early Christians passed these methods down that they learned how to share, how to reconcile people with God, to their successors. And there's nothing wrong in itself with being with tougher and harder methods like Jesus used. There's a place for fire and brimstone preaching, overt evangelism, and calling out errors. Jesus did all of that. But Jesus also took nuanced, considered approaches to building and maintaining relationships. But we forget that. Because we like teams and we like simplicity. When those tried and true methods didn't work with certain individuals, some ambassadors for Christ adapted their methods. And others continued to force methods that didn't work because our teams codified them as the only way to reconcile people to God. We can have the best in mind and in heart for those we encounter, but by not being adaptable, we can ruin the reputation of the one we represent. I think that's what's happening today. That happened back then. It'll happen in the future, too. And it's that in good faith and with all earnestness, we commit ourselves to be ambassadors of Christ. But then we go with what we know or what we've been taught or what has worked before, and suddenly we're only speaking Spanish in China, or we're speaking English everywhere because we're America, two-time World War champs, or as one ambassador said to another, This is Sparta! That's not very diplomatic, don't do that. But we often skip learning about people in groups because we have this one-size-fits-all mentality. Or we think they should conform to the standard. Or we're just ignorant of the differences. Or even worse, we engage in pride and hubris, and we don't care about the differences. Historically, we don't have to look far. The Spanish missions to indigenous peoples of California in the 1700s, the missions to Polynesia in the 1800s, the overt sentiment was dispose of your pagan rituals in favor of a Christian or honestly Western European way of living. And I'm not going to go into the abuses that happened with the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition, and there just goes on and on and on. This only way mindset affects how we interact with non-believers and believers alike. We will say and think, this is how a Christian thinks and behaves. Any deviation, any deviation is evidence of your error. And we point to selected biblical passages to support our views and our methods. And we become naive to the context or we willfully ignore the context. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and with, in his house, own household. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that house or town. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We can use these statements by Jesus, throw away the context, and pitch, place the blame for our diplomatic failures on the other party. They were closed-minded. They were unwilling to listen to me. They misunderstood what I shared. They don't appreciate my good intentions. 
They're stuck in their ways. And then we throw in this other passage. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Ah, we are the victims. It's not that I was insensitive or cruel or unfairly judgmental. The good news was too much for them. There's nothing that I could or should have done to help them understand reconciliation better. They're of the world. And since the world is evil, then they can only respond to the good news with evil. You can hear the condescension, can't you? Because we forget that we're all equal. Sure, the ground might be level at the foot of the cross, but we were first to reconcile with God. And we've forgotten the struggles, the doubt, the unbelief, the pain. And so we have no compassion for those who follow us. And we forget that ambassadors are not equal to the parties that they are reconciling. They are servants to one for the sake of the other. Now, as I'm talking, you might be thinking of someone specific, some failed ambassador that you know. You've heard someone say, God won't take you to heaven unless you do what God says, or God will send you to hell unless you do what God says. Don't do what God says. You've heard someone say, God hates murderers, or God punishes gay people, or God would want to keep all migrants out, followed by, look at the scripture. It's proof. You have heard someone say or imply, a true follower of Jesus would never support that political party. Or a true follower of Jesus would never support that social movement. Or a true follower of Jesus would never be caught dead in a place like that or with that type of person. We've all encountered these failed ambassadors. I think of pastors personally when this happens. And in particular, I'm not too fond of what one pastor in Texas, who shall remain unnamed, has said over the years. But actually, last weekend, I was at an outdoor barbecue set up as a memorial to someone who died. And a large number of those people were Hindu attending the service. A Christian pastor came up, and he had 20 seconds to pray, and he turned that 20-second prayer into a five-minute altar call. We pray for your souls today that you would accept Christ and be able to join our deceased loved one in heaven someday. Answer Jesus before it's too late. This is my calling. I have to share this. Don't be forever separated from your son-in-law. Choose Jesus before it's too late. And then that pastor proceeded to be the first to get the food from the table, have it packed up for him, and leave, all within three minutes of finishing that prayer. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, that pastor is one of the bad ones. I want people to see me as one of the good ones who loves and forgives. Please avoid that type of thinking, because we've all made mistakes. If I want to see a failed ambassador for Christ, all I have to do is look in the mirror. It's quite possible that I could be wrong in that that God wanted that pastor to deliver that specific of a message for an individual that was at that party. It's possible. You know, that pastor went well. And so do many of our fellow Christians with whom we disagree on evangelism, doctrine, social issues. No, we can't explain all of these disagreements away as simple misinterpretation of scripture or misguided interactions. But we are ambassadors for Christ to our fellow Christians. And they are ambassadors for Christ to us. We can get upset and we can justly denounce what they say and do as uncharacteristic of God, as ruinous of God's reputation. But in the spirit of reconciliation, we cannot denounce the people themselves, even if they denounce us in the process. As Daniel likes to say, we do not vote people off this island, even if we challenge them and ourselves to do better. In our hubris, 
we often completely dismiss that God is already at work in the lives of people that we're interacting with. Our job isn't to settle their hash. Our job is to help them see what God is doing. We also dismiss that they might be actually trying to reconcile us to God, and God is making that happen. You know, Jonah really didn't preach reconciliation to the Ninevites. If you read it, he went there, he said, y'all are going to be destroyed, and then he left. No reconciliation, no chance for hope, no nothing. But God was already doing the work of reconciliation there. And God used the Ninevites to actually reconcile with Jonah. Let me give you another example. My friend painting, painted this image about 15 years ago. Uh, when I worked at a church, I had this hanging in my cubicle. And people would walk by and see it, and someone would ask me about it. Uh, some would say, uh, they would give, hear complaints about it, and they would come to me and say, I had some people come by, they saw this picture, they said it was inappropriate, you need to take this down. But then other folks who actually asked me what the picture was about would find out what it was about. I would ask them, what do you think it means? And a lot of them would say, oh, it's Jesus on the last day, coming back to kick butt. And others would say, I don't know what it means, but it's awfully violent. And then I would tell them what it means. The artist of this portrait is an atheist. He painted this because he was confused by how Christians would talk about God and love and peace and reconciliation and then act insensitively, belligerently, and hatefully towards others. If they claim to represent Jesus, then this is what Jesus must be like. I hung this up in a prominent place to remind myself that no matter where I go, and regardless of the circumstances, I represent Christ. So I better be aware of how I portray Christ through my actions. But I also realized something else. I was placing myself as the ambassador, as the middleman between my friend, the atheist, and, and God. But actually, the painting is an act of diplomacy. My friend, the artist, is trying to reconcile God to Christians, pointing out where Christians might have gone astray. The artist sees the separation between who God is and who God's followers are, and he wants to help them to represent God better. God is using my friend, the atheist, as an ambassador between Jesus and Christians. Don't get me wrong. The good news is challenging. Be reconciled to God is easy to say. But actually being reconciled to God is difficult. It requires us to be humble, to be vulnerable, to admit our mistakes, and to make amends. God's message can be itself alienating because it tells us that we're not the center of the universe. But as alienating as it can be, we don't want our failed reputation a failed representation to be why someone doesn't receive the good news. Our failure comes because history provides us with precedented methods that don't always work, because those following those methods are simpler or easier than having to actually develop a relationship with someone who is my equal, because those methods give us a feeling of control and certainty. We become arbiters of who is in, who is out. And there's absolutely a misplaced pride. I have the truth. You don't. The truth isn't the focus. I am. And so when we're asked this question, ask yourself, why do you seek the cup of Christ? Is it for his glory or for yours? If we're being honest, our answer might be for my glory. So often the hindrance to the gospel is not the gospel, it's us. So often the reason people don't see God as loving, gracious, merciful, and just is because we are not loving, gracious, merciful, and just. 
So how can we rebuild God's reputation? Go on a marketing spree and buy billboard spaces and ads on YouTube? Become a televangelist and preach to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Create a viral video denouncing the hypocrisies of Christianity? Maybe. <laughs> and we can also employ the method that seems to work for Jesus pretty consistently. Rebuild God's reputation one person at a time. One interaction at a time. Listen for that person's confusion, their anger, their criticisms of God. And then help them to see that a lot of that isn't God. A lot of that is actually God's people trying their very best to represent him well and messing up. Stand up personally and individually for people who God loves and the world ignores. Help people to find ways to understand what reconciliation between them and God looks like, which might look different from what you experienced. Be the ambassadors we are called to be by being the lovers of God and neighbor that we are called to be. And when we encounter fellow ambassadors that are forgetting to represent God in full, we have to cover that in love. Bless them in love. Correct them in love. Forgive them in love. And admit when you are actually in the wrong in love. Because what fully identifies us as Christians? A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so could I have Tony and Winnie and Eric and Justice come on up, please? God is the source of all love. And God pours out that love to everyone. Go ahead, Tony. And there is more than enough love to share. It's everywhere. There's plenty of it. And it's our purpose. Tony, me too. Jesus, God, me too. And it is our purpose to share that love with others, to pass it back and forth, back and forth, and even back to God. And God continues to give love, overflowing sometimes with love. But sometimes we're stingy with it. And we believe there's not enough to go around. Or maybe that others don't deserve love. Or sometimes that there's only one way to receive God's love. Justice, I will give you love if you can raise your cup to up here. Higher, higher. Nope, not high enough. Higher, higher. But despite this, God continues to pour out to all, including to all who would withhold, to all who are undeserving, which means all of us. If we are God's ambassadors, we must learn to act like God. We must reflect God's values, God's perspectives, God's identity. We must condescend, not as we do, but as Jesus does, to join people where they are for the sake of learning of them and loving them. We have to remember that when we do everything, 
anything. We serve as God's ambassadors. And our actions reflect, reflect upon God. This is the reputation of God that we can cultivate. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Winnie. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Justice. And now, to lead us in an act of love that memorializes the love of God, let us welcome Pastor Omer. As Pastor Mark said, Bible writers intertwine the reputation of God with the reputation of God's people, meaning that one of the clearest ways people experience God's love is through the love expressed by God's family. As Pastor Mark also cited the prayer of Jesus that he prayed towards the end of his uh, last times with the disciples, Jesus prayed for his followers to experience a kind of unity with each other that was so loving and so beautiful that when people saw it, they couldn't help but think that God loved Jesus and God sent Jesus to the world. One of the most sacred ways that we together express the unity that comes with being in God's family is by sharing in communion together, where we gather around the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, all of us, equal access together, no matter where we came from or where we're going. It's a tradition that has been handed down to us from Jesus himself from the beginning. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.